You can be seated. And a reminder, the kids are staying in here with us today. And kiddos, you, uh, a lot of you received a little packet when you came in. And I encourage you to uh, think there's a coloring sheet. There's a place where you can take some notes. Maybe you can draw a picture of what we're talking about today. We're talking about the fruit of the Spirit um, out of Galatians chapter 5. So I encourage all of you to open your Bibles to Galatians 5. And we will um, move ahead in that direction. The uh, Weston and Kaylee, of course, did a phenomenal job. I love the words to those songs because they're all about the kingship of Jesus. That as Christians, we willingly submit to the rule and reign of Jesus. Um, every kingdom has a king, and that king is Jesus for those who are believers. And that is exactly what Galatians talks about in the passage today that starts with, You are called to freedom, brothers. True freedom is living the way we were wired to live, is living the way that we were designed to live, and that is underneath the rule and reign of Jesus. And we weren't born into that kingdom. We were born into a kingdom of sin and slavery, and that's why Jesus came to set us free. Let me say a quick prayer for us before we jump in. Father God, I pray as we open your word that your word would go forth, Holy Spirit, would you begin to stir in our hearts adoration and affection and allegiance for you, that your truth going forth wouldn't be limited to me and to my flesh and to my opinion, but your word, as it says of itself, would not return void, that it would do a work in and through us, exposing sin, healing wounds, encouraging our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let me read the whole passage uh, for you, starting with the one that Weston finished with last week and then walking through the rest of um, of Galatians uh, Galatians 5. Um, We're moving through Galatians a lot quicker than we move through any other book. Um, We've walked through Luke and James uh, and Ephesians, And we've got, I think, just two or three messages left in Galatians. And then we'll take a little break um, and do, uh, I think, a couple sermons on uh, marriage and family maybe. And then we're going to go Jonah next. We're going to go to the Old Testament. I'm excited about that. That's what it says in uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. But I say walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is God's word to us. When Paul uses the word flesh here, he means this inward bent toward the self, that our natural inclination is to live for ourselves, to make decisions that make us feel good, to put ourselves in the spotlight. We've used this term before of glandular living, to pursue our own pleasure, to exalt ourselves and what we want above Jesus and everyone else for that matter. Our bent naturally is self-worship. And if you didn't see this before, Hopefully you begin to see it, maybe after you get married, maybe after you have kids, that what we want, right, as utmost in our life is self-worship, that we would feel good, that we would be pleased, and that everything would orbit around how we feel about the subject. This is what Paul is talking about here in this passage, as he mentions it in verse 13, it says opportunity for the flesh, in verse 19, before he gives the long list, the works of the flesh. And this works of the flesh really play out two ways in our lives. One, an independence from God, pushing against him. We want to be our own God. We want to make our own decisions. Maybe you've heard before or said before, this is my life. I want to live it the way I want to. I want to live it for myself. Even those of us who claim to be Christians still want to think more highly of ourselves than we should. We want to boast in our own strength. The works of the flesh. This is how this plays out. An independence from God. And then the other way is opposition to the will of God. The will of God, verse 13 just says, 13 and 14, is that you would love God and love your neighbor. But the flesh, verse 14 says, is always warring against this. What he talks about here in verse 15 is just the following of that. Listen, you should love your neighbor as yourself, verse 14, verse 15. But if you go ahead and bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed. Warning not to bite and devour one another. Don't you see this in yourself if you're really honest? This is the spark that starts every marital fight. You refusing to consider the needs of others above your own. You demanding that people worship you or recognize you and your needs first. Again, this should not be unfamiliar to you. This is our natural bent. If it were not for the Spirit working in our lives, we would still be slaves to this. And this is what we're singing about. And this is the hope that we have. And we've been talking about this morning even and singing about this freedom that we have. Our natural bit, independence from God, stiff-arming God, opposition to his will. If it were not for the Spirit working in our lives, we would still, still be slaves to this. No other option but to give way to the sinful desires of the flesh. But the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to be slaves to sin anymore. Amen? This is something we can get a little excited about. I know we feel Presbyterian in here. Um, We don't have to be slaves to sin anymore. 
The good news of the gospel is not just that our sins are forgiven and we get to go to heaven when we die, but the very spirit of Christ comes to live inside of us and conforms us into his image. The new spirit in us leads us to live in supernatural ways, to love people who are incredibly unlovable, to forgive people when the world would say, no way you should forgive them. Overcoming the flesh, empowering us to live in God's power in our everyday This is what Paul talks about in Philippians 2. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is what God's doing in us. This is what Peter talks about in the book of Acts where... This is where, in the book of Acts where he refers to the promise of the spirit that's coming. It's what God talks about through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36. He says, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to obey, to be careful to obey my rules. So this is this great promise of the gospel that's woven through all of scripture. It's not a one-time transaction where we punch a code in and it spits out our assurance of eternal life. And we put that in our bag and we just live the rest of our lives like we want to. No, not at all. This is the beginning of this complete and radical supernatural life. This transformation of who we used to be to who God's making us into. And this is where the battle comes in. Of course, this passage is written to Christians. And Paul is saying over and over, the drum he's beating over and over is don't walk according to the flesh. But in contrast to that, walk by the Spirit. Look at verse 16 with me. But I say, Paul says to the church, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. From from holding back that natural bend of opposition to God and to his will, the Spirit begins to enable us to not do what we were enslaved to at one time, but now to choose the very way that God has wired us to live, to choose to worship God over ourselves. Now to know whether you're walking in the flesh or walking in the Spirit, you just look out, look at the outcome of the decisions that you're making, the results of your life. Again, Paul is contrasting a life in the flesh and a life in the spirit. These aren't just good things. These are supernatural things. And I hope as you read through this that you can see that there's a world of difference. And Wesson talked about this a little last week between biblical ethical teaching and popular American morality. Any American would likely take this list of fruits of the spirit and would nod their head in approval and say these are good things. But these good things, cannot, these virtues can't, cannot be accomplished on your own. Just like you can't put ingredients together and make an apple. An apple is grown that way, designed by God to be grown in a certain way. So are the fruits of the Spirit. The Bible tells us that the root of all sin is depravity. And that's within the human heart. And the Bible solves this problem with this supernatural encounter with God. It's called new birth at at its beginning. It's called sanctification as we walk after that. 
Verse 25, he says, if we come alive by an act of the Spirit, now let us go on walking in reliance on the Spirit. Spirit, popular American morality, on the other hand, is astonishingly naive about the depth of our own corruption and even turns much of our pride into a virtue. God is an option, they would say, or even a traditional value to be preserved, but not at all a desperately needed savior from the disease of sin. Again, this is Paul's echo again and again. Do not add anything to Jesus Christ as means for salvation. It is going to leave you frustrated and wanting every time. He says if you needed Christ at the beginning, if you needed Christ and his cross for salvation, then certainly you need him every step of every day. That's why the gospel is not something that's just near and dear to the heart of a believer to come to faith, but to continue every day of your life walking in that faith. When we walk by the Spirit, we are not controlled by these fleshly desires, even though they still exist. This is what verse 17 talks about, the flesh producing one kind of desires and the Spirit producing another, and they are opposed to each other. Paul uses the phrase that they are waging war against each other. In the heart of every believer here this morning, there's this war that is being waged between the desires of your natural sinful self focused on you living for your glory and the desires that the Holy Spirit is working in you, transforming you into. And this is not a battle that happens when it's convenient. This is not a battle that happens just when you're prayed up. This is a battle that happens incessantly. It just always is happening. Walking by the Spirit is what we do when the desires produced in the Spirit are stronger than the desires produced by the flesh. Walking in the Spirit is what we do when the desires produced by the Spirit, capital S, are stronger than the desires produced by our flesh. This means that walking in the Spirit is not something we start doing in order to get the Spirit's help, but rather, just as the phrase implies, it is something we do by the enablement of the Spirit of Jesus Christ living in us. So this battle is always going on, and we are constantly making a decision by, by what kingdom we're, we're living in at the moment. Always making a decision, whether to gratify the desires of the flesh, to live like we want to. Someone cuts you off and you want to immediately get back at them, right? That's, that's, that's the knee-jerk reaction. We need to pray for Stephen as he moves to New Orleans in a little bit. You know, there's going to be a lot of cutting off, right? A lot of, <laughs> a lot of opportunities to gratify the desires of the flesh. Or in that same moment... We can listen to the Spirit and what He is telling us, and we can submit to the Spirit. You can love people that, by all means, are unlovable. Isn't that what we see through the example of Jesus again and again? When I was in high school, I um, played ball, uh, played basketball. Tenth grade, I remember playing for a coach named Coach Dewey, and, um, and I was a scrub, um, tenth grader, got to dress out varsity every once in a while. Um, and I remember, I remember him putting me in at some points, and then him yelling from the sideline something, and it was, you know, crowds 
of people, and I didn't hear him. And he called me back over. It took me about out of the game. <clears throat> I played for like 60 seconds. And he said, uh, Luke, you didn't listen to me. And I said, but coach, I was like, you know, there's dozens of people in the stands here. You know, how, what do you mean? I, I couldn't hear you. And he said, son, if you don't learn to hear me above the noise, you will never play another minute. And as I was studying this, it's that, that illustration just came to my heart that we live in the midst of all this noise and culture saying this and we're just bombarded with messages from, from media and friends and social media and the newspaper, even more. I feel like it's getting more and more diabolical as, as we kind of move. And we as believers, we've got to learn to listen to the Spirit's voice. Always there, always speaking, always leading us, it says in John 14, into, into truth. We've got to learn to listen to the Spirit above flesh. We've got to learn to listen and to, to submit to desires, the desires of the Spirit in the midst of all this noise and conflicting desires. The Holy Spirit is dead set on conforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, but you act upon what you desire is what you love the most. Let me paint this picture for you. Your spouse says something or does something that really upsets you. And in that moment, as you feel yourself getting frustrated, as you feel yourself being maybe betrayed, as you feel maybe that you've been slighted or, or you've not been respected in a certain way, you've got two options. We can go down the path of the flesh that says, man, that hurt me. I'm going to hurt her back. I'm going to hurt him back. Man, that, 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 that was a diss to me. I'm going to get them back. Or because I've been hurt, I'm going to shut down and give them the cold shoulder. You can go down the path of anger and retaliation. That would be the desires of the flesh. That's what naturally people do. Or we can choose to follow the Spirit and the Spirit's words to us down this path of sacrificial love. If you love Christ the most in that moment, you will follow him down the path of sacrificial love and you will live for his glory. But if you love you the most, if you love you the most, you will whine and fight for your own glory. I got a pastor, a black pastor I listen to, Brian Loritz, all the time. He gets to these parts in the sermon and he just kind of pauses and he said, okay, now let me... Let me pull into your neighborhood. I love it. Let me park in your driveway for a minute. These are not spiritual truths that should just fly over our head. This is the words of God for us that nurture us, that admonish us, that point us into the right direction. And this is lived out in our lives every day. Paul rattles off this list, this work of the flesh. When we decide to follow the desires of the flesh, when at that moment we love us the most. Now the words, works of the flesh, he says in verse 19, are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, on and on he lists them. It's not a comprehensive list by any moment. It's just a little test for our own hearts and lives. Which list defines most of our life? I love, too, how it says that the works of the flesh are compared to the fruits of the Spirit. 
This works of the flesh, he mentions three sexual sins, two religious sins, seven relational sins, and then a few sins of debauchery. And then he puts in even this phrase that says, and the like. That's how we kind of know that these aren't only the list of the flesh, but just a few that he's mentioning, a few pitfalls that many of us likely fall into. And maybe you read through that list and it's a pretty sobering list as we just think, okay, guilty, 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 guilty. This is just a snapshot into what an ungenerated life looks like. Paul ends this list by explaining that people who live this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. And for the Christian, he does not mean that people who fall into this pit every once in a while, the tense of the verb indicates this habitual continuation in fleshly sins rather than an isolated lapse of judgment. And the point is that those who continually practice such sins give evidence that they have never received the spirit of Jesus Christ. I know we live in the religious south and we want to look at the gospel like it's transactional, that we were in VBS and we walked down an aisle at some point and we shook the pastor's hand as a little kid and we said, we don't want to go to hell, pastor. And he said, well, that's a good thing. And then we've just used that as assurance of our salvation, but Scripture doesn't talk about it like that. It says that we're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, trembling, that we're always supposed to inspect our heart to see whether we are really in the faith. And the way you do that is character change, is the Holy Spirit working in you to expose sin, to lead you into the fruits of righteousness, into the fruits of the Spirit. Not that you would... Walk in them perfectly, but you would walk in these increasingly. Conversely, we see the fruit of the Spirit. These are the desires of the flesh, the works of the flesh. Conversely, we see the fruit of the Spirit, this list of virtues that are evident in the life of someone who is controlled by the Spirit of God. And I've heard preachers preach on these individually as they would have a sermon on love and joy and peace. And that's not a bad thing to do, but I think it, lo- it loses the effectiveness of the context of the passage, that these are not individual fruits like apples and oranges, but like grapes on a cluster, that these all come. That you don't walk out of here saying, man, I've got to work on my love or I've got to work on my patience. No, what you, what you say is, I've got to dig deeper, my roots deeper into the soil of who Jesus is and what he's doing in my life. This is not a self-help thing that I need, I need to have more, more patience or I need to have more faithfulness or more goodness. No, what we, what we see when we read this, especially if it's this disparity between what's really in our life, is we walk out of here saying, I need to get close to Jesus. Because as we get close to Jesus, as, as Jason preached in, in, at a Psalms 1 a few weeks ago, as we develop deep roots, that even when suffering comes, our, our, our leaves don't wither. And, our, and we still produce fruit in season. You can manufacture fruit. And maybe you can cut out a cardboard image of an apple and you can hang it on a tree, but it's not real fruit. It doesn't provide sustenance for anyone. It's not evidence of any real transformation in your life. But Jesus promises us that if we abide in him, 
If his words abide in us, that our lives will begin to produce counter-cultural fruit. And it will be intriguing, and it will be in stark contrast for the rest of the way the world lives. And this is our time, church. I don't think as we move into a post-Christian culture that we have to make some decisions right now. Some of those decisions, are we going to be American more than we're going to be Christian? Maybe you'd ask yourself that question. Is the Holy Spirit doing this work in your life? He sums it all up in verse 25 by saying, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, don't say that we live by the Spirit. Don't say that we we gain access to life through the Spirit, but then we live according to the flesh. That That would confuse the world. That would probably confuse you. If you say you live by the Spirit, then let's keep in step. Let's live according to the Spirit, not becoming conceited. Not provoking one another, not envying one another. I love how he, how he ends with that, like this little admonition of a father to a son. Listen, as you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, and as you see love and self-controlled and faithfulness and goodness displayed in your life, be careful that you don't become conceited, thinking that you did this, thinking that you love people so well because of you, because it has nothing to do with you. This is the Holy Spirit doing this work. What again does it say in John 15 that apart from him you can do nothing? Don't boast in your kindness. Don't boast in your self-control. Don't boast in how much love or joy or peace. Don't become conceited. Don't provoke one another. This is easy to do, isn't it? That You're doing this. You're killing this. And then you look at all the people around you in a community group and you're like, man, I'm with a, a group of losers here. Like they're just, they're just failing on every, I mean, they can't even be good to one another. It's easy to provoke one another. And then it's also easy on the other side to see someone else who's killing it and you envy them. And you envy their gifts and you envy the way that they love. And you, you envy how even they parent and they're kind with each other. Paul says, don't do that. As Pastor Brian Loritz says, I want to pull into our driveway a little bit or let you see into mine by mentioning four things that have really helped me. And again, let me say this again and again that I don't do this perfectly. Just ask my wife. I'm so far from this. But my prayer is that these are the fruits of the Spirit are being worked in and through me increasingly. These are words that I've used several times. They're not my own. I... I read them out of something that Tim Keller wrote in the 90s, but I use them every day. These words, rely, obey, relax, and expect. And I use them to remind myself of the gospel again and again. And sometimes I even say those words. I use them as questions in my own life every day. Rely, obey, relax, and expect. So let me use that little grid and walk through this about how we as a church, how you personally, maybe you as a family, how y'all can walk, how you can walk in the Spirit Again and again, first rely. We must rely on the power of God in all circumstances. This really has two parts to relying. One is admitting your need for help. 
You ought to wake up every morning to see the task in front of you, to join God in his mission in a very dark place, and you ought to be overwhelmed with it. You ought to say very quickly, God, I cannot do this on my own. I can't even get out of bed, right, walking in the Spirit. I can't even even parent my kids. I can't be a husband to my wife. I certainly can't be a picture of the gospel to this world without your help. We've got to admit our need. I actually ask myself this question almost daily. Am I relying on the power of God in this moment or the power of Luke? Paul Tripp says, today you'll preach to yourself the true gospel of need and provision or a false gospel of independence and human strength. You're preaching one of those two gospels to yourself even now. The first step is to rely. The Bible says that we are helpless to do good apart from the enablement of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Romans 7, I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwells no good thing. What did Jesus say in John 15? Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. So the first step is walking by the Spirit. To walking by the Spirit is to rely on on the Spirit of God to live supernaturally in seemingly natural situations. We cannot do anything pleasing to God without the constant enablement of the Spirit. Part one, to admit that you need God's help. Part two, to set your mind on things above. Again, this is something that Weston mentioned, and if you didn't catch last week's, I encourage you to go find the podcast. It's kind of his application that there is something that we do with our minds to lift our minds up. It's what Paul exhorted many, many times, to set your minds on things above. Maybe you would ask yourself this question this morning, what stirs your affections for Jesus? And what robs you of those affections? When do you feel like, okay, me and Jesus are together and I want to live my life for him, and when do you feel like you could just take it or leave it? What stirs your affections for Jesus and what robs you of those affections? Paul writes, to young Timothy, that very thing, that he, I'm writing this to you, my son in the faith, Timothy, that I may fan into flame, that I may stir the affections in your heart for Jesus. Think about that for a minute. We need to cultivate the environment around us to be filled with things that stir our affections for Christ. Beholding his face leads to becoming like him. Beholding leads to becoming Again, you can't do this apart from the Spirit of Christ, but that's what the Holy Spirit does in us. He's like this big big spotlight that's just pointing to Jesus again and again. Hey, Luke, look at Jesus. Hey, Luke, would you look at Jesus? When I get offended, hey, Luke, look at Jesus. When I'm walking through suffering, hey, Luke, why don't you look at Jesus? Again and again, the Holy Spirit is communicating that to us in our hearts. Beholding leads to becoming Setting your mind on Christ, beholding him, is looking at the compass of our direction in life and seeing where we need to be headed. Lifting our eyes up shows us where true north is. It allows us to calibrate our feelings and emotions and direction around the things that are most lovely. Now, knowing this is not enough by itself. We need practice in doing this. We need routine rhythms that continually help us to behold him on a continual basis. We need tangible practices that help us order our loves rightly, according to Augustine. In his book, uh, James Smith, he has a book called You Are What You Love that I've been reading some. 
And he uses this term liturgy, a little loosely, but uses this term liturgy of habits, spiritual habits that shape our heart. He would go as so far as to say that we have secular liturgies as well as religious liturgies. We have things that we do, habits that we do, things that kind of the rhythm of our life that either point us, our eyes upward to Christ, or tend to point our eyes inward to us. Surfing Amazon shapes our heart towards consumerism and materialism. Walking through the mall is designed to do the very same thing. There are places and practices that we have adopted that shape our hearts and minds, often without us even knowing it. They help point us to where we're going. They help us to love certain things the most. Maybe a little illustration here. When you wake up in the morning and turn your alarm clock off, what's the first thing that you do? Some of you, the first thing you do is bring out your phone or whatever, tablet device, and you plug into the world. So you check Facebook and your status and what pictures of cute kids happen over there. Maybe you check the news. What, did, what happened in, 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 uh, while, I, while I was sleeping? You're not even aware of what you're doing when you're doing that. You're not aware of what this is doing to your heart, but that's a daily liturgy. Checking social media first thing in the morning is a daily liturgy that can help promote self-absorption and an unhealthy comparison that produce discontentment in you because you don't have the things that your neighbor has. Checking email first thing in the morning as soon as you get out of bed. Another daily practice, a liturgy that might promote an unhealthy view of work or a misplaced identity that you are what you accomplish. Some of you spend enormous amounts of time checking the stock market and checking bank accounts, and that promotes an unhealthy direction in life and a self-established security. Do you see how these things do shape our heart? These things do point us in a certain direction. How are your daily liturgies unintentionally orienting you away or towards Jesus? Is your day filled with things that orient your heart towards Jesus? Or is your day filled with things that orient your heart away from him? Some of you do some of these things well, you don't even think about them, like praying before a meal, acknowledging that God opens up his hand and satisfies the desires of everything. And this is a way that you're reminding yourself and you're reminding, you're teaching your kids that we are eating today because God has blessed Maybe praying before you drop your kids off at school, trusting God for protection, praying before you put them to bed, singing worship songs in the car, reading the Psalms, memorizing scripture, weekly worship. All of these are great liturgies, rhythms of our life. Part of our liturgy is that it would help us lift our eyes upward to stir our affections for Jesus. This is why weekly worship is so important to me and my family, and I feel like it should be important to you. That we make it a priority in our life, that we come and sit under teaching, we sing Christ-exalting songs, we have fellowship with one another, we have communion. We do this nearly every week here as part of our liturgy. Now, this is, might be earth-shattering news to you, but me and the staff, we don't have a three-hour creative meeting every Monday to say, you know, where's the hazer going to be and how much smoke is it pointing out, uh, uh, pouring out? You know, Jason asked me where the laser was this morning, like where's the... We don't have one of those. No, we don't spend time doing that. You can tell. 
We just kind of follow the basic liturgy of Scripture, of preaching, prayer, the public reading of Scripture, of communion, of repenting of our sins, spending time singing spiritual songs. This is one of the things that James Smith mentions in his book. Too often we look for the spirit and the extraordinary when God has promised to be present in the ordinary. Too many times we try to focus on the extraordinary of Red Sea's parting or Jesus walking on water or healing a very evident disease. And he does those things. Absolutely, he does and did. But more often than not, God is present in the ordinary of the sun rising every morning to remind you of God's faithfulness to us. The sounds of nature says in Psalms 19 that the stars coming out proclaim the work of God's hand. He's present in the ordinary. I'll move through these last few pretty quickly. Rely, then obey. We got to do what God's told us to do. Not much good in seeking the Father's heart if you're refusing to do what he's asking you to do. Second step in walking by the Spirit is to obey the way that you know is right. Notice this is not step number one. We don't wake up immediately work. No, we draw near to him. We rely on him so that our works would not be works of the flesh but works of the spirits. Only after we've cried out for the Spirit's, Spirit's enablement and thrown ourselves confidently on his promise and power to work in us do we now work with all our mights. Only when we act with spiritual preparation will we be able to say, as Paul did in 1 Corinthians 15, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, Paul says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that works within me. Or Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It is a sign of immaturity and laziness for a person to say, well, God's just going to take care of me then I may as well sit here and do nothing. As if God is walking behind you just to bail you out of all the destructive decisions that you've made up to that point. It is great incentive, not discouragement, that all our effort to obey, to do what's right, is a work of God working within us. At least for myself, I'm greatly encouraged when the going gets rough that any effort I make to do right is a sign of God's grace at work in me. Peter says in chapter 4, let him who serves, serve in the strength which God supplies, that in everything God may get the glory. Rely, obey, relax. This is an important step. Relax. You're not in control of what happens on the other side of your obedience. You're not in control. You know what you're, you know what you're, you, what you're in control of? saying no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit, and you're really not even in control of that. That's what the Spirit's doing in you. You're certainly not in control of what happens on the other side of your obedience. This is so hard to learn. Most of us are linear thinkers. We like to know the formula. If I do A and I do B in succession, it will always equal C. But the kingdom of God just doesn't work that way. Oftentimes I remind myself of this. I'm not in charge of what happens after I obey. I will work. I will rely, I will obey, but the results are up to God. And praise God that that's true. 
It is useless to try to manufacture these fruits of the Spirit. Have you ever tried to make yourself more patient? How'd that go? Now they're called fruit for a reason because you don't produce them in your own strength. This is a work that God is doing in you. Sometimes it's hard to see in the short term, but God is working in your life. He's transforming you into the image of Jesus. No need to perform, no need to manufacture, no need to pose. Just relax. Rely, obey, and relax. Walk in the Spirit, and the fruits of the Spirit will be seen increasingly in your life. Finally, to expect. Final step in walking by the Spirit is to expect God to accomplish in and through your life supernatural things. If without the Spirit we can do no right, then we must not only ask for His enablement, but also expect Him to do what He said He would do. I feel like so many of us, especially if you've grown up in the church, that we become numb to this. We kind of adopt this Eeyore mentality, this, what was me? Sin is terrible. I'm just going to persevere in this life so that I can get to the next. When Jesus didn't say the kingdom of God works like that, he said, no, eternal life is available in the, in the afterlife, certainly, but even now, that we should expect God to do great, mighty things around us, that we shouldn't live with this Eeyore mentality where we're literally shocked when God does something. I have to, I have to confess to you, I'm that way sometimes. Just recently, God has been moving in a unique way in our body, and people are coming to faith, and we'll talk about it at staff meeting, like, can you believe that happened? We should live like expecting God to do this, expecting God to invade the darkness of the earth, to flex his supernatural muscles and, and, and see things change. Do you expect him to speak to you? Maybe we should ask this question. Have you already laid your yes at his feet just waiting for his prompting? My uh, oldest daughter is pretty p- particular about what she wears. And we know as parents some of the things she doesn't like. And so sometimes me and, or Ashley will lay her clothes out before, um, before school the next day. And we'll both look at each other like, are you ready for a fight? Because it's coming. Do you think God is so eager to speak to you if... He knows you're going to be an unwilling participant. That you're going to argue back and forth. God, I don't want to do this. God, can't you ask someone else? God, why would you even save them? Now, oftentimes he does. This is from Dallas Willard. Perhaps we do not hear the voice of God because we don't expect to hear it. Then again, perhaps we do not expect it because we know that we fully intend to run our lives and are on our own and have never seriously considered anything else. The voice of God would therefore be an unwelcome intrusion into our plans. Maybe the reason that many of us don't expect God to speak because he's been silent for a while and maybe he's been silent for a while because we're just living for ourselves. says in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. 
the clearest way that we see God working in and through our lives is through our horizontal relationships. That's why in verse, we started this, Paul reminds us in verse 14 that the whole law is filled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he ends it here with this admonition not to be conceited or provoking or envying each other. The greatest work of the Spirit in us is the ability to love those around us. I'm going to say a quick prayer as we close. We're going to participate in our unimaginative liturgy. But I want us to, I want you to take a second just where you're at. And maybe you would evaluate your heart in its direction. Of those lists that Paul provided, which one defines your life? The works of the flesh or the fruit of the Spirit? Maybe you would think even a little deeper about your liturgies, that the rhythms of your life, and if they point your mind to the things above and to Jesus, or if they're mostly about you. Father, I pray for um, us as a church. I pray for our hearts. I pray that we're not just playing these religious games again and again. I pray we haven't gathered here today just to check off a box and be here on a Sunday, but God, that we are expecting you to move, even now, the exposed sin, even if we've been walking with you for decades, that there's, there's still so much work to be done in our hearts. And oftentimes you use environments like this and the word being preached to us and over us to to convict us of sin. And would, we, would, we, would we be willing and ready to repent and to bring those things to you? Well, remind us of your goodness and your love for us. That you're desiring to make us into a people. A holy nation, Peter says, a chosen people. That just by our lives and the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, that it would be this compelling but stark contrast to the rest of the world. God, would you raise up a people who are just not okay with the status quo, who are not okay with just attending an event, but who are expecting you to move? in our lives, in the lives of our neighbors, and our co-workers, those that are so far from God. Lord, forgive us for not caring about the lost around us. Forgive us for living for ourselves, for living for our glory. May you break our hearts because of the sin and apathy in our own lives. you start, and as Paul says to Timothy, would you fan into flame our desire for you? It's in Jesus' name we